0: Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to make a few quick announcements. I have had some inquiries about, do I do any distance consulting? Yes, I do. You can email me. uh, You can go to my website, paulkrauscounseling.com or healthforlifegr.com and find my email address there. I have several. One is paulk at healthforlifegr.com. You can also give me a call, 616-365-5530. I also do counseling in the state of Michigan as I'm licensed there, and I do some distance counseling in Michigan. I'm also licensed in the state of Arizona, so if you have any inquiries about that, you can also give me a call or an email. All right, thanks so much. I'm so excited to have Brian Sabatino on the show this week, and we're going to be talking about a range of issues, including mindfulness, addiction, and so much more, and a lot of philosophy. So I hope you enjoy.
1: Welcome to The Intentional Clinician. I'm your host, Paul Kraus, licensed professional counselor. This is the show where we aim to make counseling and psychology less mysterious and more accessible for everyday application in your life. In today's episode, I'm going to be interviewing Brian Sabatino, who is a licensed professional counselor and a licensed substance abuse counselor working in Tempe, Arizona. Brian runs a place called Inner Work Counseling, which is an intensive outpatient program for co-occurring disorders. A little bit about Brian. He has his bachelor's in social work from Southern Illinois University in 1983 and received his master's degree in counseling at Arizona State University in 1987. He holds two licenses, so he is able to treat a range of maladies. Uh, He specializes in the treatment of co-occurring disorders since 1984. A co-occurring disorder is when someone suffers from a mental health issue like depression or something like that, and at the same time, Has a substance abuse issue like alcohol addiction or drug addiction. Uh, I know Brian well, and uh, he says in his bio he likes to use humor as an integral part of the seriousness of counseling. Um, And he uses this to establish rapport in his therapeutic relationships. And I would say that I've heard his humor. So we'll hopefully (laughs) have some of that today. (laughs) Um, So welcome, Brian. Thank you, Paul. Uh, So, I guess I wanted to, I introduced you, but I wanted to know a little bit more about why you decided to start this place called Inner Work Counseling. Well, I had worked in um, corporate counseling for
2: a long time, and before that, uh, government counseling centers and stuff like that, and of course, those are the hardest clients and the lowest pay, and um, eventually I just decided I wanted to work in a private setting, (laughs) And uh, coincidentally, I was getting laid off at Cigna where I worked. Every, they had just closed down the whole staff model in the valley here. So everybody had to go do something. So I took the uh, they allowed me to take the intensive outpatient program
1: with me. So I um, started interwork counseling. Oh, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Very good. Um, interwork counseling was inspired by Robert, Robert Johnson, a Jungian psychoanalyst who, in a famous conversation with uh, psychiatrist Carl Jung once asked him if he thought we were going to make it as a human race yeah dr. Carl Jung replied if enough people do their inner work yeah I thought that was a
2: brilliant quote and I read all of Robert Johnson's books back in the 80s and 90s and um, his approach I mean the whole Jungian approach is really interesting obviously but I found that one particular quote applicable because Really, and now more than ever, if people aren't doing their inner work look
1: look where we're headed I mean <laughs> right
2: national news, international news, local news
1: it's right and so it is work, yeah, it is work um and actually from neuroscience we know that neurons that fire together wire together yeah, yeah. and then the more frequency that they fire together and wire together, we have the myelin sheath which makes those responses go even faster. Mm. And so if somebody is not doing their inner work and they have a pattern of behavior that could be destructive to themselves or others, yeah. that can actually get almost like programmed and get worse and worse over time. Right. Where if you're doing your inner work and you're taking time to work on that, that can be time to untangle that and actually make new connections in the brain, Right. which can become more automatic. But inner work is not easy because it's not an instant reward.
2: Exactly. And a lot of people that come into my program think that it's going to be some kind of passive event, you know, recovery from drug addiction. Um, So a big part of my work is to convince them that um, it's going to be an active process and a long-term process, and it's about so much more than just not using drugs or alcohol anymore. I make up statistics all the time. This one is uh, 10% of it is abstinence, 90% of it is the other stuff managing thoughts emotions behaviors and relationships differently through mindfulness practice
1: right and so a couple things came up with that um, well first of all I want to get into mindfulness in a moment but I heard the word process hmm and so a process is not um, a, a, a quick fix right a process is an investment of time a process is that you know for instance a craftsman who makes wooden instruments. It's a long process. Yeah. It's not it's really hard for them to make a robot to make this wooden instrument that you have to make by hand and make the soundboard and sand it and put in the whatever those things are called to hold the strings, like a harp, for yeah. instance. Yeah. And over time, you know, it could be months, this process yeah. is completed and then the harp can sing right. and it can play music. But yeah. if you just try to make a harp in a day, it's gonna end up sounding Terrible, right, you know, Right, it's not going to sound like a harp. Yeah, and that's a, it's a difficult thing for people in
2: recovery to get the true understanding of what process is. I mean, process literally has no end. An event has a beginning, a middle, and an end. A process <clears throat> is just a series of events over a course of a lifetime. And so a lot of people coming through the program will hear that and then maybe eventually they'll understand it intellectually, but it takes quite some time and often times relapsing into their drug of choice to, to really realize it, to make it real that, oh, this is something I have to do every day for the rest of my life. But not in a daunting way, just in a practice
1: sort of way, like we would practice anything. So, yeah, absolutely. So what I'm hearing is, there is the difference between knowing something intellectual mm-hmm. where you know that there's a fact that it's going to take a while to recover from alcohol and drug use mm-hmm. and be able to be sober and enjoy your life. And in fact, the 90%, which is actually having, working on your thinking processes and mm-hmm. having some meaning in your life and all these other things, having relationships that maybe the drug was taking the place of. Mm-hmm. But then we, but there's a difference between knowing things intellectually and going in and um, getting a great grade on a hundred, on a multiple choice Quiz about yeah, it, right? And a difference between deep wisdom and deep knowing. Exactly. So, can you tell me? Look, what, well, what's one your of my favorite on quotes
2: on wisdom is by Dan Millman, author of that famous book, "Way of the Peaceful Warrior," and he said, uh, "Wisdom is practicing what you know." And and you know, in an eighteen week intensive outpatient program, you can learn some stuff. So now you know some stuff, but the rest of your life is how you practice it. And um, I think that's important for any treatment center to emphasize to people, because we have this uh, mentality that all you have to do is sign up for a program, complete the program, and then you're okay,
1: and clearly that's not the way it works. So, but I think I think we probably agree on this, I'm just going to put words in your mouth, but I think my perspective is that anyone can recover from drug or alcohol abuse, depending on the level of treatment they need. Sure. Um, anyone, anyone willing. Anyone willing? Well, I was getting to that. So, yeah. so the there is no failure. Relapse is part of recovery. Yeah. And go ahead.
2: I've heard the, the expression "failing forward." In fact, we were using it in group last night. You use your mistakes to make different or better progress. So, if you if you relapse, um, you learn from it. What what did I do or not do that contributed to the relapse? Even if it's not a, a literal chemical relapse, you know, mm-hmm. we can relapse ten thousand times a day in our minds with faulty thinking and stuff like that. So it's always about catching and correcting is the expression that's used in meditation circles.
1: I like that, catching and correcting. Yeah, because there is there's technically no failure. The only failure would be giving up, which is really exactly. not failure. That's actually surrender yeah, exactly. to the addiction. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, there's a lot there. And mindfulness meditation, you mentioned that, which is almost a countercultural mm. uh compared to uh, the fast pace of the current United States. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about mindfulness and what, how you got into that or what yeah. you think about it?
2: Well, John Cabot zinn is the, the guy who brought it really in a big way to the United States back in 1979. And um, he influenced a lot of the, what I call, mainstream meditators. Um, but still, as you're saying, it's, it's a practice that's not, encouraged embraced even known in the culture at large you talk to someone about just sitting there without um, accomplishing anything or producing anything and it's it's a really strange idea Um, and you have to practice it yourself to get the personal experience that it does have the value to it Um, so there's a catch-22 there why would you practice something that you don't know about the, the value of it yet and then you know so you have to work with folks that's why we practice it every day in the program at first i can just see the people rolling their eyes behind their eyelids as we're meditating (laughs) (laughs) and then after you know five ten fifteen weeks they go oh maybe there's something to this oh yeah maybe and then they if they get a personal reward from it then maybe they'll be motivated to continue on their own but it's it's quite a profound practice for those who really dedicate themselves to it and that's hard to convince someone to
1: do well i think it might be hard until they have the experience yeah and so that's that's the hard part is you don't know what you don't know right and we see examples of that all the time and here's a fun example for popular culture popular culture is in love with those television shows where they go find a house and then you have to pick between three houses and you have to buy one at the end of the show have you heard of these shows no (laughs) <laughs> oh well
0: <laughs> good for you um,
1: <laughs> I can't get away from them uh, so I don't know what they're called but anyway the point is is that the the home buyers will be shown three different shows by these television personalities who are so happy and joyous and uh you know whatever and usually the people are convinced that they want one thing I want a house that's like this this is the house I want this is the type of location they interview them beforehand right mm-hmm. and they're convinced of it and they'll even go to a house that doesn't even suit their needs, but they're sort of kind of trying to make it suit their needs. Mm. Uh, They're like, well, uh, I think we could do this one, right? Mm -hmm. And then maybe the third house, finally, the realtor's got a trick up their sleeve, and they find this, like, house that's totally different than what they talked about wanting. Totally different type of location. But yet, the realtor had some intuition about how that if these people got out of their comfort zone, Perhaps they may actually want this house. And then usually that's the house they end up getting Which They're like, I can't believe that I would have wanted this house. I thought I wanted this house uh-huh. and this type of house with uh-huh. this type of layout and uh-huh. this type of neighborhood. But in fact, I didn't know what I didn't know. Uh-huh. And so you can't get there unless it's experience. Because someone could have showed them pictures of it. Yeah. And they would be like, ah, no. Yeah. I don't like where it is on the map. I don't like the way the kitchen is. But, but if you experience it. Yeah, you know that is where you you open up to something new, and mindfulness is an experience, and it is being. It's not productive. Correct. <laughs> In the traditional sense. In traditional of the word. sense, I think it's very productive. Yeah. For me, but go ahead. Qualitatively,
2: it's it's uh, it affects productivity and maybe redefines it. As I was listening to you, I was thinking of the expression I use a lot called uh, um, how do I always say it unconscious habitual thinking patterns. Mm-hmm. So. If I have a pre-set notion of what kind of house I want, and I see a different house, and, and have the personal experience that you're saying, yeah, it can get you can break me out of that habitual pattern, whether it's behavioral, cognitive, emotional, social, relational, whatever it might be. Um, but again, to get someone to sit down for fifteen minutes and, and just focus on their breath, it's uh, you know, you have to think of what you have to go through to get that to happen. You have to get someone enrolled in a program. You have to convince them it's a credible program. And they're sitting in a room of strangers. And now we're going to close our eyes and track our breath. You know, I get quite the interesting feedback
1: initially from the new folks. So there's a, I, there's two things I want to jump on here because you talked about credible. So I first want to jump on that before I talk about the experience of the new folks. Uh, mindfulness meditation has been studied for years, but mm-hmm. a lot, it started out with mindfulness-based stress reduction, which mm-hmm. we know it does reduce stress. That was in the se- late 70s, early 80s. Mm-hmm. And then we have mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which mm-hmm. came out in the early 2000s. We've got lots of different iterations of it. Mm-hmm. And now it's being used in corporate America, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, they're bringing it in. Um, Google yeah. has a huge program at their campus. Yeah, But one of the things is this. Almost every study has the same conclusion. Yeah. If people take somewhere between 15 and 25 minutes a day, I think most of the studies say 25 is actually the best because it's a bit more, uh-huh. and they do some type of mindfulness meditation. Now, they don't always say you have to just breathe and 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 focus on the breath, although that's the traditional one, mm-hmm. um, even guided ones that help you yeah. uh, by listening to an audio tape or, yeah, yeah. or something like that. Uh, what happens over only 60 to 90 days is hard outcomes. Yeah, Your brain has more gray matter on the MRI scans, yeah. which, of course, you know this from yeah. your work, and that that means you're able to deal with stress better and there's better connectivity. Right. Um, cortisol levels are down in your blood. Uh, blood pressure uh, is reduced. Yeah. Um, people's self-reporting, they start reporting feelings of joy. Empathy. Keep going, Other yeah, things. what else? I, I won't be able to delineate it oh, okay. as well as you, but that one came
2: to mind. And despite all those facts, it's still difficult to get someone to, to say, take 15 minutes out of your day and practice this because so many people are so busy with so many
1: things that it really sounds like a crazy request to do that. It, it is, and especially in a room full of strangers, like in an intensive outpatient program, that oh, yeah. takes, I think what it takes is a high degree of vulnerability. It does, yeah. To, to let your defenses down. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I wanted to touch
2: on what you said about the frequency and the duration. It doesn't have to be very long. So in the program, we'll do 10, 15 minutes of it. And I encourage people to take 10 minutes out of a day. And I I say, you know, how many times a day do we waste 10 minutes by listening to the news, watching a TV show, whatever it is we might be doing? Because the first response is, I don't have time. Mm. So it's changing Mm -hmm. our relationship to time, for one. And thank God for things like... uh, YouTube and podcasts and such now uh, apps people are getting into meditation through the uh technolo- technological ways uh, and usually it's the younger folks who are telling me about how they're meditating I'm just picturing them going home and meditating on their own and
1: they're, they're bringing back all these technological
2: ways that are assisting them so that's really nice to hear
1: so yeah there's a lot of applications for the smartphone yeah and even websites uh, that host audio files. Um, yes. One of the one of the applications I liked was called Headspace. Yeah, that's the one I've learned about recently. It's very fun, and it teaches you, and it has fun animated videos between the meditations to teach you different facts about mindfulness meditation. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Um, I've heard really good feedback from some people yeah, that too. I've worked with yeah. that love that application and found it useful and much easier than doing mindfulness meditation on their own. Yeah, yeah, a beginning meditator almost
2: literally can't sit there for 10 minutes on their own without some kind of guidance because um who was it jack cornfield or somebody said something like um learning to meditate is like sitting in a dark closet sitting in a locked dark closet (laughs) with a maniac (laughs) (laughs) right i mean that's what it's like to to experience your own mind for 10 minutes without any external distractions
1: Right, and so mindfulness, of course, we know eventually will calm the mind down. But in the beginning, (laughs) it brings up things possibly that we aren't dealing with. Well, it,
2: it avails your awareness of them. They're there already. Right. But we're distracting ourselves from them all day long in so many ways. But one of the ironies or paradoxes that I emphasize is that there is no goal to relax or calm down. You know, the mind will eventually, on its own, but not because we're willfully setting that as a goal, I will sit here and relax. Right. Actually, the paradox of trying to relax is you don't relax. Exactly. It's like going to sleep. You just make set up the right conditions and you'll fall asleep, but you don't will yourself to sleep.
1: Yes. If you've ever tried to will yourself to sleep, you won't sleep.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: So <laughs> it's actually, it's kind of like giving up that control. Yeah. Well put. And uh, letting things in. And I've also heard feedback from people that they don't like meditating because it brings up thoughts or ideas that they really don't want to think about well that's the that's the belief that it brings it up oh I'm sorry it brings it, brings it up yeah. I'm sorry and that was the language I used what they don't like is that
2: they're getting in touch with what's already there right so that's we're a culture of distractions i mean look at how many ways we'll pay to distract ourselves from what's going on inside us all the forms of entertainment gambling movies god knows what we do keep our attention turned outwards not inwards
1: yes (laughs) we should talk about and well that reminds me of um, I've been studying some of the Jungian uh, analytical techniques Mm -hmm. and 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 I've been seeing it in my practice which is all of this content that we get to into in the therapy room in the counseling room that comes out there people like oh my gosh I can't believe you know, I can't believe we figured out why I do such and such, or why I was upset about this, and how I'm able to transform in this situation. I can't believe we figured that out in here, um, talking about this this deep stuff. I said, "Well, wait. It doesn't matter if we talk about deep stuff or what you. That's a qualification, or if we're talking about your week. It's all there all the time. The mm-hmm. content you're carrying it around in your body, in your mind, mm-hmm. and it's already there. And for instance." just a way a person relates to you in a room uh for instance if you came in to my room and you were worried about how i would perceive you Mm -hmm. and you had to dress a certain way and smell a certain way Mm -hmm. and uh -hmm. articulate yourself in a way there might be a pattern of behavior where you're where you are preoccupied with perfectionism or people judging you or maybe you had a traumatic experience where your parents you know, said you weren't good enough and you needed to spend an hour in the bathroom getting ready every morning because you looked like sloppy or something like that. And that really impacted you as a young person. You're still carrying that today as an adult. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that 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 question about why we figure
2: out why, how did we get where we are? And that's important, but it's not enough. Once we figure out the why, I'm always emphasizing that. What's the next question? How are we going to work with it more skillfully? Yeah, I believe you know eighty to ninety percent of us have enough trauma in our histories to affect us in some sure. way or other, and that's a difficult thing to convince people of too. Because everybody says things like, "Oh, that was no big deal," or "It happened so long ago," right? And and everyone you think of trauma, you think of the classic, you know, um, military trauma, not the developmental trauma. But anyway, getting back to what you're saying, um, once you figure out the why, it's how? How am I going to work with it skillfully? intentionally, I like your word and I like the name of your practice because uh, intentionality has a lot to do with, with mindfulness practice. If we don't set our intentions for a certain way,
1: we're just going to keep practicing our unconscious patterns. Right, and so I like that um, you were talking just a moment ago how people didn't see mindfulness as practical, but by practicing mindfulness, yeah. we're, getting, we're not only figuring out the why, we're moving into the how. Yeah. And the how has to deal with the here and now, which is, yeah. well, okay, I'm already here, yeah. so what am I going to do with it? But it's not a quick fix, so people don't like that.
2: We're a society of instant gratification, right? And mindfulness practice is the antithesis of
1: that. So someone might say,
2: well, I tried it and it didn't work.
1: <laughs> well, right. <laughs> yeah. I tried it on Tuesday and yeah. Wednesday sucked. Yeah. You know.
2: Right. So I'm always talking about how it's it's not about doing, it's about being, it's not about fixing anything it's a it's an ongoing practice and and the the response is pretty predictable this doesn't work for me I can't do this Mm -hmm. and those are just other thoughts obviously well not it's not obvious to the new practitioner but you have to educate them about how those are thoughts too because we don't even know sometimes that thoughts are thoughts we just think they're
1: facts because we thought them Right. There's a there's a famous quote that says, don't believe everything you think. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember what that is, but I think that has to do with some education that we may be lacking. I want to talk about mindfulness success, too, so I wrote that down. But I feel like we might be lacking some some education about how the brain and the mind and the human body work. And Mm -hmm. so therefore, when people have these thoughts, so for instance, you and I go stand on a footbridge overlooking a highway Mm -hmm. in that five minute span. I may be thinking about what I'm making for dinner. Mm-hmm. I may be thinking about when I was a child and I walked over a footbridge. Mm-hmm. I may have all these thoughts rapid fire. Mm-hmm. I may even have a thought like, oh, my gosh, what if I jumped off this mm-hmm. footbridge? What if I push somebody off this footbridge? <laughs> oh, my gosh, I hope I don't fall off this footbridge. Mm-hmm. All of these thoughts constantly going kind of the background of my mind. And then I might say, I'm not going to voice these to Brian. He's going to think I'm crazy. So, hey, Brian, look at that Mustang down there. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Hey, look at that horizon. Hey man, the weather these days kind of crazy, huh? Yeah. How about those Cubs? <laughs> you know, I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep it light and easy and surfacey yeah, yeah, yeah. unless we're talking about philosophy. We'll go a little little lower, but I'm not gonna tell you, Brian. For about 0.24 seconds, I thought, what ha- what would happen if I pushed somebody off this bridge?
2: Yeah.
1: I don't want you to think I'm a sociopath, but the brain is, you know, from from. The earliest part of our brain is trying to protect us Mm -hmm. and it's trying to keep us safe. And so fear and also kind of revenge fantasies or whatever Mm -hmm. can quickly go through your brain without you even hardly noticing it. And when people catch into it, they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I have that thought. I better not tell anybody. And then shame and guilt can develop without understanding that the brain is constantly... Full of thoughts if we right. are paying attention, just random thoughts that make no sense right. that are in the background. We might be having seven thoughts at once. And I'm not mm-hmm. a neuroscientist, but I've read enough about this stuff to understand that. And so a lot of times people don't understand. And then what you thought, what you brought up was some people don't even realize that when they're that they're that, that when they're thinking things, that those are actually just their thoughts. Yeah. That that's not reality. Yeah, they're so like, in yeah. it that they don't even understand. Yeah. How to be out of it.
2: The old fish and water analogy. Fish been in water his whole life, so he doesn't know water from not water. So that's what our thoughts are like. And, uh, yeah, we do have all kinds of thoughts all the time. And In the program, I, I really emphasize the the safety of the atmosphere because of the fact that vulnerability is a requirement for healing. You can't heal if you're not allowing yourself to be somewhat vulnerable with safe people in safe places, not just indiscriminately. And um, people really do latch on to that. They feel, they sense it's safe in there. So they'll end up talking about these thoughts and these emotions. And they find out other people have them too. And it's pretty normalizing.
1: That sounds like a transformative experience. Yeah, I
2: mean, I think that's the power of group therapy. I like individual therapy a lot. But group therapy has this potential that individual therapy doesn't have the
1: synergistic qualities of it. Yes. In that way. Tell me, uh, I want to know a little bit about success stories, about people that came in and thought mindfulness meditation, and also your whole book here, which is all about a bunch of philosophy and ways of thinking, which I'm going to get to, how mindfulness and reading about um, the great thinkers that we stand on the shoulders of, Mm -hmm. uh, how this helps some people uh, change who were totally adamant against it when they first started. Do you have any of that?
2: Yeah, a lot of skepticism. Um, You know, from the first phone call, someone calling to see if they want to come into my program, I'll emphasize right off the bat that it's a mindfulness-based program. Some of them know what I'm talking about because it is becoming more popular. Some of them don't. I'll explain it. had a phone call this morning. The guy was like, yeah, I'll get back to you. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure he won't. But uh, most of, well, all of the people consent to it before they even come into the program. And a lot of them are skeptical, and they might take three, four, five weeks to start to really entertain it as a, a legitimate practice. Um, but if you're doing something for three times a week, for five, six weeks, you start to have your own experience of it. Some people just won't do it. They don't, like we start at the beginning of the group, they won't come in until after we're done practicing meditation. They just don't, they're not ready to face themselves in that way, that's fine. Sure. Yeah, um, yeah. I forgot where I was going with that. Well, I
1: wanted to know some success, so maybe some, some
2: success, some after. So a lot of them will come in and, uh, having been skeptical, will 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 talk about how they're applying it in their daily stressful lives, and and that's more credible to the newcomer when they hear it from a, a, another client that's been coming in the program for a while. It's more credible than hearing it from me, because. For some reason, they think I have a snake oil sales for them. <laughs> and if it's coming from another group right. member, it's like, well, what are that? That person has no motivation to lie to me. So they'll listen to them. And, and I hear them telling stories about it before I even come into the group room uh, to start the group formally. I'll hear them talking to each other about, yeah, there's really something to this. So the success is in the willingness to practice. It's not like your life becomes, you know, some Hollywood ending. Sure. It's just, you reduce the, the frequency, the duration, and the intensity of uh, stress in, in so many ways,
1: which I think can also reduce the frequency of anxiety attacks, absolutely um, depressive episodes. Right. Yeah. When I've worked with some people on mindfulness in my practice in the individual work, I've had some people say to me after working on mindfulness, and not even you know not even they weren't even following such a strict program, just doing it a couple times a week. When they felt stressed, or they felt depressed, or they felt anxious, and, you know, obviously the more you do, the more benefit, but just like exercise, but um, Mm -hmm. a person said to me the other day something like, well, I noticed, thinking back about the last six months or eight months, that when I get depressed, it's only for a day now. Where before it was if I got depressed, I was that way for five, six days, seven days in a row. Yeah. Couldn't do anything I wanted to do, couldn't function very well, and now it's like a day and now it's even getting less than a day. I'm actually yeah. able to and, and of course I think if they keep going, I've had people where when they get depressed it's only for for a few hours. Or maybe they don't even get depressed, they're just sad. Yeah. And they deal with the sadness.
2: And that's a really important distinction. They can start to discern uh, labels that we learn from drug companies on the television, <laughs> from genuine, the spectrum of genuine human emotion. What's the difference between sadness and depression? Anxiety. We just learn these terms and we, we, we label things that uh, we don't even understand what they are completely. So through the practice, we start to be able to differentiate. And that's a really important distinction for folks. And you can tolerate sadness. Oh, sadness is a part of being human. I don't have to call it depression. I don't have to take antidepressants necessarily. I'm not anti-medicine. Sure. But, but, you know, it's just we label something and medicate it before we even explore
1: it. Right. We want the quick fix. Yeah. But that that even brings me... Well, so we, I, you've said this in a few episodes, but I'll say it again. We are not anti-medication. A lot of people need medication for a time because they've gotten such a deep rut or yeah. they're in such bad circumstances. Yeah, I've been on medication such trauma for sure.
2: depression. And and that's how I got into meditation practice. I wanted oh. I wanted another option besides medicines, and uh, after practicing for a few years and some good psychotherapy, I don't have to take medicines anymore. And I know that's not true for everybody,
1: but it can be true well, for a, a, a,
2: an important percentage of people.
1: I would say that. Yeah, absolutely. We can't say that's everyone could have that, but um, it is worth a shot. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, I, you know, we don't prescribe anything, but I've had lots of patients come into me and say, oh, my gosh, when I first saw you, I was on three meds. Mm-hmm. And I actually just went to my psychiatrist last week, and now I'm off the final med. And I didn't even, I was like, what? I only thought you were getting off one of them. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I'm off all of them now. Yeah. And the, two years later, I, um, I talked to one of the people, and they, they were still off the meds and doing great yeah. because they were practicing. So um, this stuff can change your brain. Counseling can change your brain. Mindfulness meditation can change your brain, but it is not... Always, it is not quick. It's not a quick right. process. It is an investment. It's a lifetime practice. But getting back to what it is to be human, through mindfulness meditation, I started practicing in about 2005. Um, I had done yoga before that when i was in college but only briefly and i noticed wow this really helps me and then i got so busy Mm. and told myself i was busy with a bunch of distractions and Mm. you know college behavior that that wasn't that (laughs) wasn't very helpful but (laughs) but when i did yoga i was like oh my gosh i remember that and then i was you know this is another thing i say if you're a counselor out there i hope you're going to counseling at least once or twice a year Mm -hmm. to get a tune-up because i i i'm pretty i i'm I'm open. I'm an open person, but I'm a little discriminatory on one thing: my profession. So, if uh, counselors told me they never go to counseling, I'll never send a patient to you. Yeah. Ever. That's my so, bias too. So you got to be open. You got to be an open book. Yeah. You, know, you don't have to tell people your whole story, whatever. Right. But just be open to counseling and don't think that you're better than other people, because that brings us back to people. Yeah. And what would it is to be human? Yeah. I remember in 2005 I started practicing it because my counselor was like, "Gee." You know, you're going through a rough patch here. You're not seeming to get better. You're not pulling out of it. You know, why don't you try this? I was like, whatever. You know, yeah, what oh, do you got to lose? I don't This is stupid. Yeah. You know, whatever. <laughs> so but she, they said, no, really, just give it a shot for two weeks. Yeah. And what can, what kind of goal can you set? I was like, well, I, I work five days a week, so why don't I, or whatever I was doing at the time, I can't remember. But I was like, I can do it 10 minutes. Before I go, and I used a, a CD, which was just a little guide to help me remember to breathe and all that. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, after the NTU, I was like, whoa, this is weird. At first, I thought this was dumb. Mm-hmm. And now I'm feeling less stressed when I go to my job. Yeah. And so then I just kept going and going and going with it. And um, it helped me unlabel things and it helped me yeah. discern between yeah. what are these weird cultural messages, what are these strange, distorted thoughts. That we all have, and what is actually going on right now.
2: Right. Yeah, I think you mentioned something at the uh, yeah at the beginning of the podcast. You talked about making counseling less mysterious, more accessible. Yes. And I think that's really important because counseling isn't some super necessarily some super uh, elite process. It's just it's ordinary folks talking about ordinary stuff. Sometimes it's really profound. Sometimes it's not. And uh, and if you have a safe place to to talk to someone who can convince you to try something new, at your own pace, you know, because it's important. The old expression "don't resist resistance" comes to mind. Right. If someone's not ready to go that fast or in that direction, then go at their own pace, and things happen for folks like yourself, like me, like our clients.
1: Yes, things do happen, and I think that's getting back to being a person. Yeah. So. Um. I wanted to jump into that. I'm not exactly sure how, but it seems to all be leading there. Okay. Um, human beings in the United States as we discussed are always doing, 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 doing. We are doing people, we gotta do things, we gotta get her done, we gotta be productive, we gotta look at first quarter returns. <laughs> we got short term, short term, short term on our mind. We got short term outcomes, short term pleasure. Mm-hmm. Look at the commercials, you know. Mm-hmm. If you get this, all of a sudden you get this rush of dopamine. Mm-hmm. If you know, if you mm-hmm. have this alcoholic drink or you buy this car. Or you go on this vacation, Mm. and right now, and you deserve it. And hurry up and get this new unicorn frappuccino, or whatever (laughs) is whatever people are drinking now. It's now. I'm not even kidding you. That's a thing. Oh my god, that's a thing. I don't know. I haven't had. I have no idea what's in it. Probably, probably a bunch of sugar. But yeah, uh, people have been. It somehow entered my consciousness (laughs) from the from the hive mind. Um, You know, we have all this now, now, now stuff, but it's so weird because. It, it's about, it's promoting the consumerism, but it's also labeling and it's and it's keeping us going. It's keeping, and we're always working. We're working. We're working so much for what? You work so much to, to get a cottage in the country that you never go to. Yeah. And you work so much to get that boat in your garage that you never take it on the lake. Right. Or you work so much for a company and then they lay you off because you got, the company got acquired by somewhere else. Right. So the, the, these guarantees, we, we want this, we want to grasp onto to these, to these, these you know not bad things but things that seem like a great idea yeah and I can't wait for the weekend I'm just living for the weekend I can't wait to get there and we're we're neglecting ourselves as humans the present moment being a human
2: yeah we're always we're always thinking that I'll be happy when you know living for the weekend getting the boat getting a better job title clothes, partner whatever sure and we're always, you know, wasting the the most precious commodity there is, and that's this moment. That's what I'm telling my clients all the time: is we never seem to notice that it's always now, <laughs> right? <laughs> it is always now. Yeah, uh, but we 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 kind of like ignore now for some future fantasy now, right? That then I'll be happy, then I'll be satisfied, content, whatever. And until you learn to be content in this moment, it's not possible to be content in some future moment, despite the. External circumstances. That's just a difficult concept to comprehend and to embrace and live.
1: It's almost like a mindset shift. Yeah. Because you can meet people with awful circumstances. Yeah. And they seem to be the happiest people you've ever met. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, whistling Dixie and yes. running around and yes, whatever the attitude they embrace. It's, right? So it's part about the attitude. It's not the circumstance. Because yeah. then we get to what if we get to the the New Year's Eve party, right? And we're like, here we are. We paid hundreds of dollars right. to get in here, right. and then we are met with reality. The yes. music's too loud. The food is crap. It's too crowded. Um, I didn't have the experience I was dreaming of. Right. But earlier in the day, we neglected the moment. Getting ready for the New Year's party was actually the best part of yes. my day, and yes. we all talked about our lives and yes. whatever.
2: Yes. Because we're still packing around our particular quality of consciousness. Even at at the party, I'm still experiencing the quality of consciousness that I experienced anticipating the party. So if I don't work on evolving my quality of consciousness now, why would my future experiences, regardless if it's a party or not, be any better? Because I'm still packing around that same quality of consciousness. That sounds pretty heavy, pretty Philosophical, but it's also really practical. If I can learn to be content in this breath, I can be content in this breath at a future moment, at a party or not a party or whatever. Uh, let me read real sure. quick out of the workbook. Yeah, uh, Sherry Carter Scott has this really uh, neat poem. I'll call it um, page sixty-six. Um, one of the uh, says rules for being human. She's got like ten rules. One of the rules is there, in quotes, there is no better place than here, in quotes. When your there has become a here, you will simply obtain another there that will again look better than your new here. <laughs> so that's convoluted, but it's it's just addressing this idea of I'll be happy when, and then the when comes and you're still not happy. And so you, you come up with another when. So the practice is really practical in that respect.
1: Yes, I agree. I agree completely. I was looking for another quote where you said that. I think we should, might want to jump into the workbook because by embracing this philosophy, this can help people overcome things. Yeah. And, and by by learning to be in the moment and learning these skills. And this isn't just one skill we're talking about. Right. We're talking about multiple skills. We're talking about being able to work through emotions, being able to work on meaning, to be able to... We, we were just talking about how to contextualize and how to be a human. Mm-hmm. But all of these things can help people in their lives, mm-hmm. live a better life, mm-hmm. um, to discerning who who you want to spend your time with mm-hmm. to being a better, whatever you are in a family unit, whatever mm-hmm. your role is mm-hmm. to being a better, whatever job you work at to being, to being a better friend to taking care of yourself or even taking care of whatever, whoever you take care of a, a pet or an animal or a garden or a child or whatever to even taking care of your community yeah, to, mm-hmm. to transforming yourself and your suffering
2: yeah,
1: uh, into yeah. a place where, well, we're all going to suffer, but a, a, a way of suffering in a graceful way, whereas, you know, sometimes when we, we have this lack and we, we aren't in the moment and we're, and we're always grasping at some higher experience, you know, the substitute for some of our feelings is the drug, which oh, of course then, yeah. br- you know, the drug or alcohol, which can bring. Yeah, and those are just a
2: couple of the many dozens of addictive behaviors right. that we numb out with. But what you're saying reminds me of the statement we've all probably heard that pain is, is, uh, how's it go, pain is unavoidable, suffering is optional, something like that. Yes, okay. So mindfulness practice can help us um, cope with the legitimate pain of being human, but it can take us out of that realm of suffering, which is sort of like this repetition of the pain through the resistance of it.
1: Okay. So let's go a little deeper into that. So... Yeah, I think we live in we live in a reality which is full of suffering, even in the most tranquil of lives
2: mm-hmm.
1: in the United States, mm-hmm. um, and especially if you don't have a tranquil life, it's really full of a lot of suffering. But mm-hmm. everyone's going to suffer. Everyone's going to go through it. Mm-hmm. So tell me about that difference about resisting yeah. painful experiences and and how that could and how that could go against.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult to come up with a, a concise example, but let's say um, I'm missing someone, and so I feel lonely. Mm-hmm. And that loneliness is painful. But since we live in the culture we live in, it's not cool to even feel loneliness, let alone talk about it with mm-hmm. someone else. Mm-hmm. So I just distract myself with one of the hundreds of ways you know we can distract ourselves on a daily basis. So I'm not dealing with that legitimate pain of being human. In this example, mm-hmm. loneliness. Mm-hmm. I'm doing whatever it is we do, and in the doing of that, in the distracting myself of it, I'm not processing the feeling. I'm not um, working it through. So it, you know, it builds up, and then it turns into suffering. So something more chronic, because of course you're not just feeling one feeling in a given day. You're feeling many feelings, Tons, right. yeah. And so there's that that synergistic effect. I'm not going to be aware of my emotions and expressing them to the degree is that's realistic. I know we can't sit around all day and do that.
1: Sure, sometimes we don't have quote time because yeah. we're at work. <laughs> yeah. We're at work,
2: but-, but to the degree that you can, you know, you you're, you're going to deal with the pain legitimately. You're going to feel it, you're going to express it, and it's not going to fester. You're not going to have to deal with the suffering. You know, like when you ignore pain, it turns into suffering. It's more chronic.
1: And then that could, could, could become a, a pattern in your life. Yeah. yeah. And, and, a, and a negative pattern. Yeah. And a pattern that you repeat over and over. Right. Because if you're dealing with the why, which is, I think, what you were talking about, then we can move to the how, which is, gee, I'm lonely. A lot of my friends moved away, or I'm post-college, or I'm post-divorce, or whatever, some big life event, yeah. and my community seems to have dispersed. Yeah. So, or maybe I'm... an elderly person mm-hmm. and i am saying gosh darn it i am going to be independent i am never moving into one of those facilities and yeah. i don't care if i'm sitting here by myself watching tv all day yeah. Yeah. and 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 then what what if we all consider whatever it is and this goes to me and you too but what are the possibilities that i might invite myself into community yeah and and, and actually deal with some of the loneliness it may not be what i wanted because right. i i had my mind set on, these are my people, this is my community, and then that changed. Yeah. And then life changed, and yeah. I they had to move, or I had to move, or or something happened with the organization I was a part of. Uh, it reminds me of this quote from Thomas More. Um, oh, like Loneliness can be the result of an attitude that community is something into which one is received. Many people wait for members of community to invite them in, and until that happens, they are lonely. There may be something of a child here who expects to be taken care of by the family. But a community is not a family. It is a group of people held together by feelings of belonging, and those feelings are not a birthright. Belonging is an active verb, something we do positively. In one of his letters, Fenicio makes the remark, the one guardian of life is love, but to be loved, you must love. A person oppressed by loneliness can go out into the world and simply start belonging to it, not by joining organizations, but by living through feelings of relatedness to other people to nature to society to the world as a whole relatedness is a signal of the soul by allowing the sometimes vulnerable feelings of relatedness soul pours into life and doesn't have to insist on itself symptomatically that's beautiful is that
2: from his book uh,
1: about the soul it's about care care of the soul by care Thomas of the soul yeah, yeah and i mean he was you know waxing poetic but he was also talking about our human attitudes yeah and the practical I, I mean, we can take stuff from that. I'll say what I think, but you, well, you say back, what you think. It's
2: back to that passivity I was talking about earlier where people think of recovery as a passive event versus an active process. Mm-hmm. He's talking about if you want to feel a sense of community, you've got to you know, want a friend, be a friend kind of a thing. you got to involve yourself rather than just waiting for someone to come to you. So that applies to so many things in life.
1: And uh, waiting for someone to come to you is probably an unconscious behavior, most sure, likely, sure. until it becomes conscious, possibly through yeah. contemplation yeah. or meditate, mindfulness meditation or even just dealing with what's happening. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. I've heard stories before, no one ever calls me. Yes. Or nowadays, no one ever texts me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or Facebooks me or... Right, or whatever. whatever else. No one Snapchats me. Yeah. I don't even have that, but whatever, yeah. you know. I'm sure it'll be something new next week. Right, right. And then it's like, well who are you texting? Who are you calling? Yes. But we have to move through the feeling first, yeah. which is I'm lonely. Yeah. I wish I had a friend or a family member or somebody to yeah. open up to me. This this keeps coming up so much, but there's I need to find the study. But I'm quoting a study I read, so this is loose, like making up statistics. Uh-huh. But it said something about, they did this, it's a big national study, and they did this study with Americans who said, um, it was like back in the 60s, that most Americans, the average number of people that Americans felt that they could open up to in a conversation and and talk about really personal things was four. And then in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s, it was two to three. And now it's somewhere around one or less. Yeah, and I've heard
2: that uh, correlated with, inversely correlated with um, the average square footage of people's houses. Oh. strange statistic but the, the larger the square footage in someone's house the less contacts they have with a, a genuine friend you know anyone beyond the acquaintance level interesting wow stuff.
1: and it's interesting and in we've you know i'm not a building expert or an architect expert but from what my observations in the suburbs and what i also call the exurbs which are not even <laughs> i like that they have no town center they just have like a gas station and applebee's by the highway yeah um we are building what I call McMansions, <laughs> which are cookie cutter developer houses, which have, you know, you pick from four four floor pans and four stuccos and this yeah. and that, and they are gorgeous, Brian, but good Lord, they're huge, and, and it's, you know, I'm sure some people are using them for, you know, having whatever they want to do. It's it's the American way. You do what you want. But it's just yeah. interesting how we're building these bigger houses versus you and I both lived in Chicago. You grew up there. Yeah. And in Chicago, all the houses are jam-packed yeah. together. Yeah. And we got three floors. And maybe yeah. we're renting out two of the floors and living on one of the floors and the three flat. Right. And we're all kind of jammed in there. And everybody knows each other's business. But with these McMansions, man, we can yeah. really hide from people real yeah. well. Unless yeah. I got a clubhouse, which is cool. you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: Know. Well, it's interesting because I just bought a McMansion, <laughs> and uh, we're moving in, selling a house and buying a house, and it's really stressful, and I've been trying to use my mindfulness practice to cope with all of it, but uh, I have a, a short story about that. The, the, I live in Tempe right now, and it, it's in an area where a lot of the houses are for rent for ASU students. Oh, So I've been there 10 years, and I have virtually no sense of community whatsoever. Mm. I wave at my neighbors, they wave at me, it's about it. We've had opportunities to, to connect, but it just hasn't happened. So we move into this new house way out in South Chandler because uh, we're going to do a horse property and equine therapy and all kinds of workshops and stuff. And uh, the first night, literally the first night, we're moving in the truck still in the driveway. We've met eight of our neighbors. Wow. They've brought eggs from the chickens in their backyard. Wow. brought a bottle of wine. I'm sitting on my back patio, boxes everywhere. Trying to get names straight, and uh, so community happens. You just have to, I guess, keep at it. <laughs> right, community
1: happens no matter where you are. Yeah. But some, but sometimes you do for proximity and 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 comfortability. Sometimes it is the move that into an intentional community or into a, a community of like-minded people or into a city center or 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 out of a city center maybe to yeah. the country because it's about what, what we're doing intentionally. And I mean, I've lived places where I knew my neighbors, I've lived places where I only knew my neighbors slightly mm-hmm. and my community ended up being, you know, at the school I was attending or my community was, um, at these people's house cause they live in the middle of, you know, you know, I've lived in Arizona for years before moving to Michigan and, uh, back to Michigan mm-hmm. and, uh, in Arizona, everything's so spread out. I guess Detroit is very spread out, but I don't live there. But anyway, mm-hmm. it's all so spread out that, you know, I have friends and they'll all be in a different zip code mm-hmm. in a different city, literally, mm-hmm. like because there's like if people haven't been here. There's what? I don't know, 10 cities that are sprawling into Phoenix yeah. or across Phoenix and so yeah. it was it was actually more of a challenge to be more intentional and say, "Hey, we need to meet up here. This is a central meeting place. Yeah. And let's do this. Like yeah. let's do this because I'm not just going to see you in my neighborhood at the grocery store. We go to different grocery stores. Right. We go to different post offices. Right. Uh, right. you know, we go to different uh, hardware stores. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, or maybe we're just online getting stuff delivered. I don't know. You know, yeah, it's like yeah. we have to we have to get out there and so that it can you it can bring up those attitudes but with mindfulness. Can bring us to the why. Oh, I'm lonely. Then the how. Okay, wait a minute. Why don't I just pick up my smartphone, that can connect me to a bunch of rubbish, or it can connect me to my friends. Right, but there's the vulnerability. If
2: I have to call them, having quotes. Right. You know. Now I'm, you know, I'm responsible to reach out, and, and all the feelings that come with that. I want them to call me.
1: <laughs> yeah, because doesn't it? It feels good to feel. I, I don't know. Here here's my transference on that. I feel special when people call me. I feel needed and wanted. And that might help my self-esteem if I don't feel that I am good enough inside. Yes, yes. Um, So it's so, you know, I think mindfulness and taking that time out can help us abandon, not only transform over time, but abandon some of these traps we trap ourselves in, these thinking traps. Yeah, yeah, and it is a trap because if you believe a thought
2: just because you think it, now that thought is is perceived as a fact when it's really not I I love this analogy I don't know where it came from probably Stephen Levine or one of those uh, initial guys that wrote about meditation um, he talks about um, comparing your mind to the sky and then comparing your thoughts and emotions to the weather in the sky so the sky doesn't take the weather in the sky personally. It doesn't go, oh, that cloud is a fact. I am that cloud, or that lightning bolt, or whatever it is, that hurricane, tornado, God knows what else. The sky just contains everything. It's not even affected by it, the violent weather that exists within it. And then the storms go away, and the sky is still the sky. So, you know, if, if we can identify our, if we can yeah, identify our, our our identity with more like the sky than the weather in the sky, our thoughts and emotions. We can have those thoughts. We can have those um, emotions. And, and it's me having them. They're not having me. I can experience them fully without confusing who I am with what I'm experiencing at the moment. It's When you have a personal experience of that in a formal meditation or... Informally throughout the rest of your day. That's a powerful experience. I call it the emotional Equivalent of winning the lottery to be able to
1: to discern that Absolutely, absolutely because then we are the person having These experiences these emotions these thoughts and we are not the thought so I feel angry I am sad right now. Yeah, Um, I i am having a longing i'm having a desire i'm having mm-hmm. uh i'm having re- feeling some regrets versus i am a regretful person i am an angry man yeah i am um uh, you know i am embodying this emotion and this is how i am like i've heard yeah. people <laughs> people say like i'm just an asshole that's the way i am
2: yeah
1: and it's like this is the way i am and i feel like what they're actually saying if i could pick it apart is I think, I'm thinking these angry, judgmental thoughts all the time, and so now I've identified with some sort of label. Yeah. And so I don't, and I also hear despair. I don't think I can change. This is just the way I am, so deal with it. Everyone needs to walk on eggshells around me.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, instead of thinking, boy, maybe I just went through a hard time, and it, and it made me yeah. uh, feel uh, angst and regret. Yeah. And, and I went through that, and I'm still, my name is still Bob. Right. You know, I, right. I made that name up, but right. my name is Bob and I'm a guy because this is something you know and I know is you know, we have these people walking around, these characters with these, you know, loud mouths or quiet mouths or whatever who whatever we're discerning. Yeah. And some people are you know, we we are quick to label, quick to judge. Yeah. And what mindfulness does is tries to bring you to a place of non judgment and compassion. Right towards, about yourself towards yourself and others. Towards yourself and others, and harder towards and every... yourself, though you know. <laughs> we'll get to that in a second here, but yeah, yeah, but but when you see, when you actually get to know somebody who labels themselves or has yeah. been labeled in some negative fashion, you, you can start to see the humanity. You withhold judgment, and everyone has got this beautiful soul inside of them this this story
2: yeah
1: and, and and maybe they've got so many things twisted around it and yeah. and you know maybe pathologies and addictions and different yeah. problems they went through and different pain but we all have that human humanness inside yeah. and um there's a potential for change although for some for some situations like extreme situations it could take years and yeah. it might take outside forces and it may take um you know, interventions, yeah. you know, depending on how extreme it is. But just for your yeah. average Joe or Jill out there, right. you can change your, you know, you you know, you're going through a hard time, Right. you're, you're depressed, you're, you right. feel quote unquote, all these things we've labeled from the drug companies, right? All yeah. these diagnoses, yeah. I'm experiencing all these symptoms. Yeah. Well, the symptoms are there for a reason. I don't know exactly why. I mean, yeah. well, we, I think it ties into what we talked
2: about earlier, the developmental trauma issues many of which are dramatic, many of which are not. But we go through all of them for over the decades, and then we forget they happened. And now we're saying, I'm an asshole instead of I'm angry because this happened to me and I never dealt with it. And then, you know, to, to deal with that, therapy, healing, that's it's painful, it's time-consuming, it's expensive. Why do all that when you can just go drink or
1: take a you know, an antidepressant or whatever. Shoot, or watch Netflix for 24 hours yeah, straight. Yeah. Except now they're making you click, I'm still watching the show. I'm oh, sure. wow.
2: Just, uh, that's a joke.
1: But yes, oh, oh. absolutely. <laughs> okay, I, I think like, they are doing that, but it was a joke that I said that. But yeah, yes, we I can do it. all these it. other behaviors. Or just, let's go to the casino. Yeah. Let's just go on another vacation. Or, um, video games. Let's, God knows what. Let's find ourselves in an abusive relationship mm. or, or, mm. or seek a, um, a uh, relationship that may not be healthy in some way. Yeah. Um, I wanted, uh, I I want to get more thoughts. I want to jump into your book. And uh, for people that don't know, Brian Sabatino has written a fantastic book, which I have read most of. I don't think I've hundred percent read it all, but that's how I do things. I read six books at once. <laughs> um, called Inner Work: Mindfulness Based Recovery. Copyright. And uh, I don't know. This is this book available anywhere? No. I only want it uh, to be
2: used by the people I work with because how many books have we all read, and then just go on to the next book. I, I make this joke about if self help books worked, we would only need one. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not, I'm kidding obviously, yeah. but um, I don't want someone to. I used to sell the book, and, right? And uh, people would say, "Oh, I loved your book." <laughs> Right. I say, well, what would you get out of it? How did you apply it to your life? Well, I didn't really do that. So, I don't oh, I only want people to read it if they're going to bring the concepts into their life through my program. There's a story, I don't know if we have time to read it. We have it.
1: plenty of time.
2: Uh, the last part of this book, it's called The New Preacher. And and these stories, I don't most of them don't even have the authors uh, listed. So, God knows where these beautiful stories come from, but this one's called The New Preacher.
0: And stay tuned, everyone, for the next podcast release. I'm going to be releasing two podcasts today because of the length of this podcast. It wasn't all able to fit in one file. Thank you so much. This has been Paul Krause, The Intentional Clinician. You can get a hold of me at www.paulkrauscounseling.com or healthforlifegr.com or 616-365-5530. In my office, we have both male and female counselors, and I would love to work with somebody you know or yourself, and I also do distance consulting. Thanks so much. Stay tuned for the next episode.